Our scripture this morning is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And as you turn there, and hopefully you're already there, I want to set the stage for what's going to be a, a two-week mini-series covering the life of Naaman. If you haven't read the story of Naaman, or if you haven't been through the book of 2 Kings in a while, uh, then I think you're in for a real treat. Because this text has all the making of a brilliantly crafted story, intricately woven between rising action, conflict, climax, and conclusion, lies an unlikely meeting between a famed warrior with a glaring problem and the God of his enemy, who's the only one who can save him. Now, don't get me wrong, saying it's a well-crafted story is not to say that it's mere fabrication or a myth or a good tale. Naaman was a real person, as real as you and I. I'm saying that the writer of these events, the one who put this down into paper, chose his words carefully, making sure certain aspects stayed in and certain aspects stayed out. And in doing so, tells a story that reaches far deeper than its brevity would suggest. And like all good stories, I think this one's going to continue with you long after the initial reading. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our text. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the main character of the narrative is a man named Naaman, and you're going to get to know Naaman pretty well over the course of the next week or so. And though he was a great warrior and commander of a whole entire Syrian army, he had one fatal flaw. He was a leper. Now, leprosy is a very slow-growing disease. It's both highly contagious and deadly. It affects the nerves, the skin, the eyes, the nose all of which will become swollen as the disease progresses. Most people affected with leprosy eventually lose the ability to touch and actually sense pain, meaning they slowly lose their ability to feel at all. I thought about posting a picture up there, but quite honestly, I thought it was going to be a little bit distracting. It, it's, a, it's not a good disease. And it's one of those things where you can get it, contract it, and within 20 years still be suffering from it. It's very slow going. And here's the thing, when it's left untreated, and especially back in the ancient Near East when there was no treatment, it would almost always result in nerve damage. You would have paralysis of the hands and feet, which means not only would you not be able to feel, you wouldn't be able to walk or move at all. And as those cases advance, you'd often have the loss of toes and fingers, in some cases the body reabsorbing them, in other cases just bashing them and not having them heal. Blindness means you're not seeing anything, so your world's getting very, very small, even though you're still cognitively there, until eventually you died. All this to say, if you had leprosy in the ancient world, you were as good as dead to most societies. That's what we're dealing with. See, most societies would make lepers live on the outskirts of town, away from family and away from loved ones. You couldn't be around community. You didn't have opportunity to celebrate. And if you happen to be leprous, it meant being dirty in perpetuity. No matter how many times you washed or were washed, there was no way to fully be cleaned, ever. Until eventually your body broke down and you simply died outside of town, alone. If it sounds grave, it really is. and We have to get the weight of that. Because we don't deal with leprosy today in America. I think there's like 150 cases. So You've got to go searching for it. 
but it still impacts people around the world. And it's a terrible, terrible disease that isolates and basically you, you watch the world around you, but you cannot interact with it. So here's a question that our text is asking us to ask. How is it that such a great warrior, Naaman, how, he, how could he be leprous? Why is he leprous? Shouldn't a great man like this be blessed? No doubt Naaman thought so. But before we answer that question, there's an important detail we need to address. And it's pretty small. In fact, so small, you may have missed it during our initial reading. Look back with me halfway through verse 1. The text states, because by him, that is by Naaman, the Lord had given victory in Syria. Now the word Lord, translated in our Bibles, is known in Hebrew as the Tetragrammaton. It sounds like a mouthful. All it is, is it's the name of God. Specifically, it's the four letters, Y-H-W-H, and you pronounce it Yahweh. Okay, That is the proper name of God, as dictated in the Masoretic text. And so anytime you actually see the name, Lord, lowercase caps, know in the Hebrew, in the Masoretic text, that is the proper name of God. That's what's being stated. This isn't just Lord specifically. This isn't just, you know, general God. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now catch this. Naaman, the Syrian champion, warrior and leper, given victory not by the pagan god he worships, but by the God of his enemy, the God of Israel. If you were a hearer of this word when it was originally written, if you were an Israelite hearing this text, it would have caught you. (laughs) Why is our God healing and allowing this man to thrive? Doesn't he deserve to be punished? And thus, verse 1 sets the stage for our story. We're introduced to the main characters, that of Naaman the Syrian, but also that of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So we have the Syrian and the God of Israel. And these two, already an unlikely pairing, are going to have an encounter that will change Naaman in ways he couldn't possibly have imagined. And that's what we're invited into. That's what we're invited to, to join into. And like all good narratives, you got to have some conflict. So verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now, keeping our two main characters in mind, we're starting to see how this meeting between the two, between Naaman the Syrian and Yahweh the God of Israel, comes to be. The text gives no indication as to whether Naaman was involved in the raid, nor are we told how the little girl made her way into the service of his wife. We're not told that. But implicit in this text is the invisible hand of God all the way through. Look at it. His hand, orchestrating and moving, going well beyond the ability and control of even Naaman. For it's he who brings this little girl, an Israelite daughter, into the service of his wife. And it's here that we find our inciting moment. Naaman is given his first glimpse into a potential cure, coming from an unlikely source. And yet that cure remains shrouded in mystery. It's going to cost him. He's going going to have to go on a journey in order to obtain it. And that journey is going to take him from his home. It's going to take him from his God. It's going to put him into the heart of his enemy and his enemy's God. That's the journey Naaman's being invited into. And from this point, every word in our narrative, every syllable 
is going to push us towards the question that's been dangling in our hearts since we first began. Will Naaman be made clean? And I think this speaks to us today. I think if we're honest, at some point, each of us feel as though we are unable to be fully clean. Feel as though our sin or sin that's been done to us has moved us beyond hope. And how many of us, now be honest, when we feel the tension between who we are and who we want to be, fight to not go to despair? Or maybe even begin to think it's hopeless? Maybe you're a fighter and you're trying to clean yourself through your own strength only to find that it never truly lasts. And it's here, it's, it's in that that we, I think we see ourselves the most in Naaman. Because I think like Naaman, we too struggle to know what it means to be clean and to be clean. And I think it would be easy to just merely write this off as physicality, to think Naaman's greatest need was to be found in the healing of his leprosy. And you'd be in good company. That's exactly what Naaman thought. But I think our text offers us something more, something far, far better than just the physicality of our struggles. I think our text speaks to not only how we're made clean, but in the process of that, profoundly deepens what it means to be clean. And so that's the question we're going to look at this morning. That's the question our text is asking. How are we made clean? That's the question Naaman is not yet asking, but we'll get to. And so we're going to examine it from two perspectives this morning. We're going to look at looking to the self. Is that how we become clean? Is looking to the self the way that we can become what we are supposed to be? In modern speak, it's self-actualization. Once you've reached the pinnacle and you can finally find the true self within you and unlock that, we're also going to look at what about our rituals? What about our disciplines? What about the things we do? Can those things make us clean? And I think our text is going to answer both of those questions as we jump into it. And thankfully, it wastes no time getting to the point. So let's begin. Verse 4, now that we've set the stage for our context and our scene, let's now see how the narrative unfolds. Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke, to the girl, spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Well, go now. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends me word to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider... And see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. In our first scene, since the initial plot began, we now see Naaman. And he's asking his king for permission. This is getting the adventure going. And now he's traveling to the king of Israel. And he's got this large entourage and sum of money and clothing. Roughly 600 common laborers would have been able to live off the amount of money he's bringing. And that's for one whole year. So this is a... A fairly significant amount. And it would have been fitting for a noble of his status and rank. It was a standard gesture for a person of that status to, to basically give in good faith. But it also signified a payment of sorts. And, and we're going to come back to that next week when we look at that aspect of payment. And we deal with uh, Gehazi and we'll start to look at um, yeah, what, what the role of payment looks like. But for this week, it's sufficient to note that Naaman is offering a very, very high price 
to obtain his healing. And then we get to verse 7, and the whole scene changes. We find ourselves in the halls of the king of Israel, and Naaman presents this official letter detailing his intentions to the king of Israel. But did you notice Joram's response in verse 7? Joram's the king of Israel at the time. He doesn't send Naaman to the prophet. In fact, he doesn't seem to think about the prophet or God at all. All he does in that moment is he looks to himself. And in doing that, actually shows less faith in Yahweh than Naaman. And the results speak for themselves. The more Joram looks to his own heart to fix the problem, the more he looks to himself to fix it, the more he becomes riddled with worry, fear, and doubt. I know something about worry, fear, and doubt. When I was in fourth grade, fourth grade, it's part of a big take-home project. Did you guys ever do take-home projects? I'm sure you did. There's a science project, and what we had to do is we had to create an ecosystem that would allow for a goldfish to survive. Sounds simple enough. And I remember being very, very, very excited about a goldfish because we did not have fish or pets or anything really to speak of. Um, it's just the way it was in my household. And so my mom helped me gather the materials, and we built this kind of ecosystem together. And, and the day finally arrived where we had to bring this project to school, and our teacher would give us the goldfish, and you know, it was a big deal, and it was a big day. And I remember that day arriving, and I had this very vivid sense of accomplishment. I was very, very proud of what I had built, this kind of like two-liter bottle connected to another two-liter bottle ecosystem. I'm not exactly sure how it worked, which might have been the problem. Um, but it was kind of a high point, fourth grade, plateaued. I felt like I'm on top of the world here. Look at what I've built. And, uh, and I think we went on spring break because I remember there was a, a period of time where we just weren't in school and we were supposed to journal how the ecosystem was going, how our fish was doing. And uh, somewhere between making this ecosystem and putting it together, I had totally overlooked that a fish needs to eat. And uh, so my ecosystem became a death system. And, uh, and I had a journal, and I remember my fish just waking up one morning. I was like, why is my fish dead? And being filled with just this crazy sense of shame. Like, it was the first time I remember waking up at night being anxious. Fourth grade, fourth grade. And it was because I felt like I had failed. I felt like I had completely blown this thing. And so I remember making up my journal assignments. Yeah, fish was happy, thriving, I'm great at this. But all the while, I'm just filled with shame, worry, fear, and dread. Now, in hindsight, I, I should have just told the teacher, can't do journal assignment, fish died. Right? Happens. These things happen. And several students ended up doing that. Like, I wasn't the only one. But in my mind, I was the only one. And so when this crazy thing erupted in my mind, I, I, I looked to myself to try to fix it. But what I was filled with was fear, dread, anxiousness, and doubt. Okay, maybe you're not a fish killer in fourth grade. But don't we have times where we look to ourselves to fix what we can't? We look to ourselves to be rid of shame. We, we look to ourselves to be made clean. And more often than not, I think what we're left with is fear and anxiety. And I believe our story brilliantly points this out. I, I I think it shows that by looking to ourselves, by trying to be the, pro the point person, in, in modern speak, the self-actualized person, we don't get any cleaner. We don't fix any of the problems. We don't actually make ourselves whole. We don't actually rid ourselves of shame and guilt. 
we walk away with fear, dread, and worry. Now, some of you may say, of course, it's not by looking to self. I, I, I already knew that, Brian. You can cross that off the list. And there, we should have that on the screen here. It's just the, kind of a list of things. Yeah, I, I, I know it's not through self. You know, looking to self leaves us with fear and anxiety. But what if we just you know, do the right thing? Or make others do the right thing? H- how about you move through life, and if you don't want to feel guilt and shame, then don't do things that make you feel guilty or shameful. You know, it's on you and you, you can discipline yourself and you can come up with right rituals and you can, you can do this. And then oftentimes in that conversation, somebody throws out, God helps those who helps themselves, right? Comes from the book of Second Assumptions. It's not actually written in the Bible, but we, we tend to think it is. But I think it's good because our, our text actually pushes into that exact same question. What about rituals and discipline? If self doesn't work, if that's not going to clean us, what about the things we do? Let's take a look. Verse 8. When Elijah the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. So we've reached now the third scene of our story, and we're finally introduced to the prophet. The prophet that was mentioned way, way, way back in the first verses is now finally on the scene. But notice how he got there. He had to reach out to Naaman directly. King Joram never connected the two. King Joram is still trying to figure it out, still rattled in his own fear of worry and doubt. So Elisha reaches out, and, he said, and we're actually told why he reaches out. It's interesting. He says that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elijah wants Naaman to know there's a God who's truly in this place, even though my king doesn't know that. And notice the phrasing in verse 9. Naaman's standing with his horses and chariots at the door of Elijah's house. Naaman is standing at the door of a prophet. He is at the door. That, that whole phrase is so pregnant with meaning, and I want to set the scene for you. First, Naaman's not the kind of person, he's not the type of person who normally just shows up at people's houses. He's the type of person who people go to. Unless you're a king, you're probably not getting a visit from Naaman. Okay? And yet here we see it's the prophet staying put and the commander of the Syrian army having to go to his home. That's unique. That's interesting. Second, to stand before the door contains an authorial aspect to it. Naaman brings his entourage, horses, chariots, money, and clothing. And yet, he is by no means in control of the situation. He's showing up at the complete mercy of Elijah. These are not random details the author is including. This is essential if you want to know and understand this text. Every single point of Naaman's journey, he is being stripped more and more and more of his power, his authority, his status, and he's being humbled at every single 
turn. To the point where the man who has held the power of life and death over so many is now waiting on the God of his enemy because he needs to be saved. He needs to be cleaned. He needs to be healed. This is not a position of power. It's a position of need. But we're not done with Naaman. And he's not done. Verse 10, Elijah sent a messenger to him. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. So still standing at the door, standing at the door, not in the door, not inside, not, hey, welcome, roll out the red carpet, come on in, I'm so glad you came. Elisha doesn't even come to him. Sends his servant, hey, go talk to that guy. <laughs> ah, it's amazing. I mean, it's truly amazing. And then this is what he says, go wash. Go wash. Guys, at this point, we're expecting Naaman, right, to just run over to that river. I mean, think of it. He's riddled with the disease that leaves him one day blind with no fingers, no toes, no ability to move, and then he dies alone. And Elijah's saying, go scrub in the river and you'll be clean. But that's not what happens. In fact, that's not what happens at all. In fact, verse 11 maybe is a bit shocking. Naaman was angry. And he goes away. And this is what he said. Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and, and call to the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And he goes on. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he went away in a rage. And man, do I want us to see this. When Naaman's expectations weren't met, when his preferred ritual wasn't performed, what came out of him is what was always in there, a prideful heart. And it showed itself in anger and rage. He had had enough. I go to Israel, I meet this king, I'm now at your house, I'm now standing here, and you don't even have the decency to come and look at me face to face to heal me. And notice the formula here. Naaman leads with his expectation. I stood before you, you stand before me. And then he goes to his conviction. You call on your God to do this thing. And notice, Naaman says nothing about Yahweh being his God. In fact, he goes out of his way to, to make it clear, this is your God, your business, this is your side of the deal. And then he ends with this ritual. Wave your hand. Cure me. Once you perform that, I'll be allowed to continue as I have before. See, for Naaman, in some ways, there's a depth of what Naaman's asking here. He, he doesn't want to just be clean. He wants to be healed. And here we're seeing this subtle expansion of the word clean. Notice this. When Elijah instructs him to bathe in the river, this is what Naaman's hearing. Go and wash up. Go wash yourself, Naaman. And Naaman's hearing that, and he's saying, I don't want to be washed up. I can wash in my rivers. I need to be clean. I need to be healed. I need this disease gone. I need my shame and my misery met. I want to feel again. And this response shows us that 
In a way, Naaman understands, but he doesn't understand. He, he, I don't need to just bathe in the water. I, I need healing. And he responds with rage. Now, some commentators have tried to treat this when he talks about the rivers, about this as an ethnocentric remark from Naaman. And I think it seems fair to read the text as it stands. The rivers of Farpar and Abana were then and are still today far, far clearer than the River Jordan. Uh, You've got to think about the River Jordan. It flows all the way down to the Dead Sea. And through that, it's a very turbulent river filled with sediment and cloudy in comparison. Whereas the Parfar and the Abana, known as the Awaj and the Barada today, they still exist, it's real places, uh, they're known for their clarity. And if so, I think his point's well taken. I, I think he's looking at Elijah just on a surface level, and he's saying, look, we've got clearer rivers at home if that's all you're talking about. We've got this covered. Why am I going to the stinky Jordan that's all turbulent? I've got, if that's all you're going to do is wash me, why am I here? And it's interesting because Naaman thought Elijah had missed the depth of his problem. He thought Elijah just wanted him to be clean. So when Elijah didn't perform the ritual he was expecting, when Elijah didn't respond in the manner that Naaman had prescribed, Naaman flew into a blind rage. And catch this, guys. He walks away from the only source that can save him. I'm not sure. I'm sure many of you have probably been to a baseball game. Though not recent, I've seen my fair share of games over the years. And the ones that I remember the most are usually the ones I don't sit to see or don't stick around to see. You know the type. Bottom of the eighth, your team's down five runs, and you start thinking about the traffic on 64. And you're like, I'd rather not deal with that headache. So you leave the game early thinking it's a blowout. I'll save myself the trouble, get a head start. Have you ever been there in that moment? No? Yes, some of you? And you think, I, I'm, you convince yourself, I know what's going to happen. I know how it's going to happen. It's already over. We're good. But just curiosity speaking, you turn on the radio, only to find that your team has tied it up in what can only be described as a lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime comeback. I wish that's only happened once. That's happened several times in my life. And, uh, and every, t- every time, I'm just like, of course. If I want my team to win, I just need to leave early. Like, that's what I need to do. And isn't this the attitude we have with God at times? See, we go into a situation with our expectations, and when things don't go to plan, when our rituals seem to fail us, we give up. And we start heading for the door. And in that moment, we should realize... And though often we don't, we should realize in that moment that really all we've been doing that whole time was more, more about what God could give me than relationship with God. And that's exactly how Naaman's treating this right now. He, he, Naaman was right to think he needed more than a bath. He did. But Naaman didn't realize how deep his need went. He didn't realize how, un, how the uncleanness of his skin went far beyond his skin and into the depth of his heart. And that's why he fundamentally he saw his healing as ritualistic. Perform this action, say this incantation, I go on my way. I do this for you, you do this for me, and this is how the contraction works. 
But Naaman didn't realize that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was inviting him not just to clean his disease, but to cure his soul. As our text has shown us, I think looking to rituals is not what makes us clean. I think when we look to rituals alone, it leaves us with anger and rage. And, and oftentimes we end up walking away from the only source that can save us. And as we looked earlier, we know that looking to ourselves doesn't leave us clean. It fills us with anxiety, doubt, worry, and fear. So the question remains, how then are we made clean? And to answer that, I think sometimes what we need is an outside voice to wake us up a bit. A voice to call us back to what is true. Look with me in verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. And so Naaman went down, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. The leper, who had previously held the power of life and death over men, now clean. The leper, who believed Elijah was missing the point, now clean. The leper, who had turned in rage just moments before this, now clean. And in a twist as shocking then as it is today, Naaman now saw it was he who didn't understand what it meant to be clean. See, Naaman used to believe his greatest need was to be rid of his leprosy. But now that he's clean, he finally sees what he truly lacked. A genuine relationship with the God who had made him. And just in case you don't believe me, let's just peek at verse 15. We'll deal with verse 15 next week, but I just want to peek there. Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and, catch that phrase again, we'll deal with it next week, stood before him, stood at the door, but this time he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. See, Naaman the Syrian commander and warrior, he was proud in his status, confident in his rituals. But now is awakened to see that it wasn't his leprosy that needed to be cleansed, merely his leprosy, every single part and fiber of his being. And that only comes through faith in the one true God. And having been cleansed by that one true God, he has now been cleansed in a way that not even death can overcome. So as we look to apply this text to our lives this morning, I just want to briefly look at the narrative arc of Naaman. First, he, his entire journey is marked by humiliation. In order to leave his kingdom, he has to acknowledge his need. He has to go to his king and say, I'm a leper. Once he gets the permission to go, he, in order to be healed, he has to go to a distant land. He has to leave home, leave his God, leave his networks, and go far away. He has to journey. 
Once he's journeyed, and now he's in the land of this foreign entity in the house of the king, in order to find healing, he actually has to leave the king, he has to leave what's comfortable for him, and go to the house of a prophet. And then once he's at the door of the prophet, he has to wait. His entourage has no power there. And even when he gets word from the prophet, it's not from the prophet directly, it's through a messenger that the prophet sent and that says, go and wash. A request that seems so benign as to miss the entire point of his journey in the first place. And therein lies the point. The entire time, the entire journey of Naaman is one of brokenness and humility. And this is important since we are made clean through the work of God on our behalf alone. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. How are we made clean? It's not through self, which produces fear and anxiety. It's not through our rituals, which will leave us anger and enraged. It's through the work of God on our behalf. And the way that we approach that God is through humility. The way that we approach God is being humbled before him. I want you to think about this. When Elisha told Naaman, go and wash, why didn't Elijah just wave his hand? Why didn't he just call on God and perform the duty? Catch this, guys. Because both Elisha and Naaman knew washing in a river doesn't cure you of leprosy. It doesn't cure you of leprosy. And they both knew that, and that's the point. See, if Elijah waved his hand, it would have only cost Naaman gold and silver. And Yahweh would be able to remain the foreign god of his enemy, a transactional piece of his life. And Naaman would be free to go on as he chose to live. But this is what God does. Each time Naaman tries to rely on himself, everything falls apart. Each time he tries to take control of the situation, the invisible God, a hand of God changes that situation to where he has to confront God. And this is grace. This is grace. If Naaman was healed on his own terms, he would have lived out his days having never known the God who created him. And then the real tragedy would have hit, not dying of leprosy, but dying without placing your faith and hope in the only God that can truly save. Naaman had to go to the water. He had to go to the water. He had to go because both Elijah and him know the only person that gets glory when you're saved in a river is the creator of that river and the creator of you. Because everyone knows a river can't heal disease. Did you catch that? It, it, had to, it had to be outside of his realm of understanding. It had to push him to faith. It had to push him beyond what he could control. See, Naaman, for all of his strength, will, and wisdom, upon his death would be powerless to bridge the chasm between him and the God he scorned in this life. And I want you to see that the most gracious thing God could do to Naaman was humble him. It was the most gracious thing he could do. It was only then, only after Naaman's self in ritual had faded away, that he was able to act in faith, to trust in a work that went far beyond his hand, to actually be fully cleaned. Now I know in a room this size, in an online presence, that 
knows how big that is. But there are people that are going through terrible circumstances right now, some humiliating, some physically demanding, some emotionally draining. And, and I want you to know, and I want to note this, life does not leave us unaffected. It doesn't. It impacts us. Sometimes it's our sin, but, but sometimes it's the sin of others. And sometimes it's just the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. And in all of this, I don't want to pretend as though life is anything but troubling at times. Naaman had a real Ill illness. <laughs> like he had an illness that was going to kill him. And yet the Lord was gracious enough to use that to not only heal but to bring him to a greater need of understanding that he was a sinner in need of knowing and loving his creator. See, the gospel of Christ meets us in our brokenness, promises to walk with us in our brokenness, but it's still brokenness on the side of eternity. And so I want to push us to what does it look like to be humbled before the Lord? Because I think that word humble can often comes with negative connotation. And so I put a verse up here from from Matthew, it says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, I believe to come to the Lord in humility is to come to Jesus with your need. To cast your cares on him, knowing that he is faithful and just. Faithful and just to forgive your sins. To run to him, knowing that he's the perfecter of our faith, the one who causes all things to work for good for those who love him. And, and here's the thing, we know this because Jesus was the only one in human history who lived in a perfect obedience unto God. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the only one who ever trusted God without waver or doubt. And it's through faith alone in Jesus that we have any hope of being clean, fully clean, truly clean. It's through his life that we have any hope in the life to come. Which is why if you don't know Jesus this morning, then I invite you to come. To stop looking to yourself to be saved. To stop looking to your rituals or your disciplines or the good things you do for God to be saved. To rid yourself of all that and to come to him. To cast yourself upon him as Naaman had to go to the water and dip himself seven times in a turbulent, stinky river through faith, that's what I'm inviting you to. To trust in the God that can truly heal. And to the believer, I encourage you to bring your fears, to bring your worries, to bring your anger, to bring your rage, to bring the byproducts of living in a fallen and broken world, being sinned against and sinning against others and to place them at the feet of Jesus. To call upon him. Because he can carry you. He can carry you across the difficulties of your life. That's not mere platitudes. It's real. It's true. And it's the only hope we have. He is able to carry the burdens that overwhelm you. He is able to to carry the weight that pins you down. So to all, I invite you this morning to walk not in reliance on self, for it only leads to worry and doubt, and not reliance on rituals, for it only leads to anger 
and rage, but to rely on Jesus. And I invite you today to call upon him in prayer and ask him to come. Ask him to relieve. Ask him to carry you. That's my prayer. Let's go ahead and pray this morning. Father, I thank you for our text as we see the life of Naaman and as we see the ways that you humbled him time and time and time again to bring him to a place where he would actually see and respond in faith. Not bringing his ability, not bringing his entourage, not bringing his money, not relying on his rituals, not relying on himself, but seeing himself in need truly as he is. That the leprosy was, was merely an aspect of his need, but it wasn't the totality of his need. It wasn't everything in his need. He needed to be fully clean. And so, Father, I pray for our community and our hearts to not just hear this, but to know this. And that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully through your word that we may respond in faith not running from the only source that can heal us, not running from the only source that can save us, not running from the only source that can clean us, but knowing that your gracious hand invites us to yourself, the better portion, the truer clean. And Father, I thank you for your grace towards us. In your name, amen.